And this is Stacey Harbaugh coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. The U.S. House of Representatives voted to protect contraceptive access today, with Wisconsin's delegation voting along party lines. The Right to Contraception Act passed the House on a 228 to 195 vote, although all five Wisconsin Republicans' representatives voted against the measure. Meanwhile, the state's three Democratic representatives voted for the bill. Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that the bill came just one day after the House voted to codify same-sex marriage. In that vote, just one Republican, Brian Stile, voted in support of the legislation. The Wisconsin Elections Commission is getting ready for a statewide voter education campaign this fall to help inform voters about how voting works in Wisconsin. The Associated Press reports that the campaign came out of a meeting earlier this week where state election directors from across the country gathered in Madison to discuss the need to confront election conspiracy theories. The campaign will come in two parts, started by heading straight to high school students, and then the Elections Commission will take the campaign to the general public. The campaign will offer all of the basics, including how to register to vote, absentee voting, and how you too can become a poll worker. A well-known Madison musician will not face charges for allegedly grooming more than a dozen girls while working as a band director. Dane County District Attorney's Office has declined to bring charges against David Henzi Skogan, who was accused of grooming 13 students in the marching band he instructed, the Oregon Shadow Shadow and Bugle Corps. Because he allegedly waited until they turned 18 to pursue sexual relationships with the girls, the Deputy District Attorney William Brown said Henzi Skogan didn't break any laws and couldn't be charged, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Oregon High School did not renew Henzi Skogan's contract last May in light of the allegations. The Dane County Board of Supervisors will vote to make it an offense to threaten an election official at tonight's county board meeting. Under the new ordinance, someone who harasses an election official, either in person or virtually, can face a disorderly conduct charge, as well as a $500 fine. It's a larger push by city and county officials to protect election workers. Now, also being discussed tonight is a resolution in support of the State Election Commission and democracy as a whole. The meeting will be both in person and online at 7 this evening. The meeting will take place in room 201 of the City County Building. And finally, today marks a special anniversary for the state of Wisconsin. On this day in 1972, comedian George Carlin was arrested after performing at Summerfest when he performed his famous seven words you can't say on television bit. And Carlin was charged with disorderly conduct after the performance, but those charges were eventually dropped. After the sketch was performed on community radio, WBAI in New York, and generated a complaint to the FCC, the performance went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The court ruled that those words could not be broadcast on terrestrial TV or radio and formed the basis for the indecency rules that broadcasters, including WORT, must follow to this day. 
Now, those original seven words are, of course... And... (laughs) And now on to today's top stories. When a public meeting is called to discuss a new property development, rezoning, or alcohol license, city alders have to reach out to all of the impacted constituents to let them know when and where that meeting will take place. But a 2020 law barring public officials from using public funds for campaigning made that a sticky situation. Now, city officials are looking to make small changes on how they notify the public about new changes in their neighborhood. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout has more. The city's Alcohol License Review Committee is recommending a change in how the public is notified about new building developments and alcohol licenses. The new change will allow city alders to get the word out about public hearings during an election year. While Madison Common Council meetings do allow for public comment, those comments are limited to just a few minutes. That's where public hearings come in. Public hearings and neighborhood meetings are a way for the public to engage in a conversation about an issue. Alder Patrick Heck of District 2, who sponsored the resolution during last night's meeting, says that these neighborhood meetings happen for any new alcohol license or property development. When there's, for instance, a new alcohol license application or an entertainment license application, postcards go out to, to the neighbors for every single one of those, I think. Any zoning change, uh, postcards go out automatically sent by staff to people that live within, I think it's 100 feet of the address. In late 2020, the Wisconsin Ethics Commission penned a new rule, later written as a statute by state lawmakers, stating that any elected official who intends to run for re-election cannot send out any materials or communications to more than 50 people using public funds. This law goes into effect the first day that nomination papers are legally allowed to be circulated. These kind of communications can range from everything from postcards indicating public hearing to even the alder's own blogs. Heck says that this can cause major problems for city officials when it comes to public hearings on new developments. We found out, you know, we were cut off from our constituents during election season, and it just didn't really seem fair to not be able to send anything out uh, about an important meeting that's taking place on a redevelopment or something. Currently, alders have to be the ones to send these postcards on public hearings. Under the proposed resolution, however, that duty can now fall onto staff. Heck says that these changes will make the process of getting the word out about a public hearing smoother, and not just during election years. So it, it's kind of a little, in some ways, stupid little thing we're doing, but it's like it's going to make life easier for constituents and alders uh, in the future uh, during election season, but also we toyed with the process a little bit so that we make sure that, you know, notifications can go out easily, even in non-election season. You know, depending upon the alder, sometimes alders are too busy to respond to, to situations when an application comes in, or perhaps they're, you know, not quite as responsive. So we wanted to make sure that staff could have the option to send out 
notifications. The proposed resolution also extends the time frame that public meetings can occur. Currently, a public meeting can happen within seven days of the new permit going before the given committee. Now, the applicant has to talk with their alder within one week of their initial filing, where they will both decide whether and when a meeting should take place. The proposed resolution is scheduled to go before the full Common Council on August 2nd. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie Hout. The state of Wisconsin is suing a wide-ranging group of chemical companies over their role in PFAS contamination in the state. WORT reporter Emily Kasinger has more. At a press conference yesterday, Governor Tony Evers announced that he and Attorney General Josh Call are suing manufacturers and other polluters over their contribution to PFAS contamination in the state. The press conference was held at French Island, where high levels of PFAS contamination in wells led the Department of Natural Resources in Wisconsin to provide residents with bottled water since March of 2021. The suit names 18 defendants, including 3M, Tyco, DuPont, ChemGuard, and others. Also included are 20 unnamed defendants charged with having permitted, caused, and or contributed to the PFAS contamination of Wisconsin's natural resources. The state is partnering with Cher Edling, a San Francisco-based environmental law firm, to bring the lawsuit. The complaint, filed yesterday in Dane County Court, alleges chemical companies, quote, knew or should have known, unquote, the harm that the PFAS and their products caused to the environment and to the people exposed. PFAS, a family of forever chemicals that are highly mobile and difficult to break down, have been scientifically linked to a range of negative health effects, such as increased risk of some cancers, developmental impacts in children, and decreased fertility in women. PFAS is common in consumer goods for its nonstick and fire-suppressing effects. In Madison, a main source of PFAS contamination comes from the firefighting foam that was sprayed for decades at Truex Airfield that has leached into the city's water. The lawsuit alleges that many of these chemical companies conducted internal research that revealed worrying health consequences of PFAS, but these companies failed to convey any warning to the public and in some cases knowingly misrepresented the truth of the chemical's impact. In fact, many companies continued manufacturing and selling PFAS-containing products for decades after such knowledge was internally available. Through the suit, Wisconsin is demanding the defending chemical companies pay the cost of cleaning up and treating PFAS contamination. The state is also seeking punitive damages and injunctive relief for the companies being sued to stop contributing to PFAS contamination in Wisconsin. In his press conference yesterday, Governor Evers said this about the suit, quote, This lawsuit is about accountability. It's time to hold these polluters accountable and to make them pay for the cost of cleaning up their own mess. Reporting for WORT News, this is Emily Kasinger. The Dane County Fair opened its gates this morning, marking the beginning of a four-day run at the Alliant Energy Center. WORT reporter Andy Barrow toured the fair for today for this report.
It's hard to describe the atmosphere at the Dane County Fair today. The first thing I saw when I walked in was a U.S. Army recruiting booth, complete with a titanic, olive-drab military vehicle. A thin crowd of early afternoon fairgoers had braved the sweltering heat to enjoy rides, funnel cake, and $5 glass lemonade. Inside the Alliant Energy Center's exhibition hall, rows of tables with information about veterans and the military shared space with kids' arts and crafts. The American Red Cross was running a blood drive in the corner. Among the fairground standards like merry-go-rounds, fun houses, and shooting galleries, there were also events that showcased local farm culture. One of the most popular attractions was an agricultural mock game show for kids. Howdy. Oh, that's how they say hi in Texas. I guess they don't say that in Wisconsin, do they? Welcome everybody to the Wheels of Fortune. The Wheels of Agriculture. Our big show here is going to start in just a few minutes here. Let me start our clock so I don't start talking in those spots. For the folks I talked to, though, it was the fair's animal shows that were the most exciting. Stables and 4-H clubs from across the state submitted animals for judging. This heifer just done, and I want to commend her on that. But she's got a real feminine and attractive one uh, that just needs to just needs to have a little more food to her today. She's a little bit more modest, uh, but just uh, in her own way, she's a practical individual, a good woman. When you pick her out the grass, I think she's going to be a very functional, uh, you know, brute cow replacement type female. Uh, just gives up some of the extras that have to do ahead of her. But uh, a nice treat, nonetheless. We'll get back out here for a grand. I didn't get a chance to discuss the fair with any of the people who are actually working there, but I did talk to some of the folks competing in the animal shows. Here's what they had to say. Um, my name's Emma. I'm Maddie. And we're here to show horses! <laughs> okay, cool. And what are you guys most excited about today? Today or the whole fair? Oh, uh, sure, the whole fair, yeah. I'd say musical freestyle. Yeah, that one's okay. one of the most fun classes here. It doesn't qualify you to go to state, but it's just really fun, laid back, and you get to have a fun time with your horses. Yeah, okay. you just put a pattern to a song and get to dress up pretty much. So this is my eighth year showing, my last year showing. And to this morning I showed a lot of beef cattle. So I got first place in my class. And oh, congratulations. Tomorrow I plan on showing my two halfers in their class, but respective classes and hopefully to do well. Now, this is kind of like a really fun thing that I kind of look forward to doing every summer. You know, being able to work with cattle and get to know them and kind of watch them come from these shy heifers and watch them getting trained and it's always kind of like an enjoyable experience for me. Fantastic, cool. And uh, what was your name? Caleb. Okay, cool. Thank you, Caleb. Yep. Good luck. Uh, so we're at the Dane County Fair. Uh, we brought our animal exhibits that we've been working with all summer here. Uh, just getting them ready for the show. As you can see, they're eating hay and we give them water. Keep them cool and they're under the fence. Uh, basically what we're here to do is we exhibit our animals. We, uh, In showmanship, we basically exhibit ourselves and how we present our animal. And when we do cap class, we're basically being or trying to make the calf look her best. We're here to exhibit our animals, have fun, hang out with our friends, eat some good fair food, enjoy all that kind of stuff. But yeah, 
cool. That's Fantastic. mostly why you're here. Yep. Um, tell me more about the the fair food. What are you excited yeah, for? Yeah. So place? I just actually got some steak tacos from one of the uh, the stands out there, and those were really good. Also, gonna have to get some ice cream and cream puffs later. That's just a Wisconsin staple, you The Dane County Fair will run through Sunday. Reporting for WORT, this is Andy Barrow. It's 6.22 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. While doom scrolling is known as the act of spending an excessive amount of time scrolling through social media and absorbing negative news story after negative news story, it may be clear that doom scrolling may have a negative effect on your mental health. A new report out of UW-Madison shows that it may not just be negative news, but any negative news in excess. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Marcus Brower, a psychology professor at UW-Madison, about the report. If you're anything like me at the onset of the pandemic, you probably spent a decent amount of time scrolling through social media sites searching for any new information about COVID that you could find. But a new study shows that there may be a link between spending time on social media looking for news and increased anxiety. That's from a new report out of UW-Madison. With me today is Marcus Brower, a professor over at UW-Madison. Marcus, thank you for coming on here with me today. Thank you for having me. So just starting things off here, so this new report, it studied worry and anxiety in people who spent time uh, looking at a couple different kinds of media, specifically one of them uh, at the very top was social media uh, during the pandemic at the very beginning there. What did what did your research find? We found that people were quite distressed. Um, it was a distressing time, right? Nobody knew what was going on. Nobody knew how long it would last, how dangerous this actually was, uh, COVID, and, and whether there would be long-term effects, etc. So uh, general levels of distress and anxiety were high. In addition, we found that those who spent more time looking for information related to COVID were actually more distressed, more anxious. And that is incredibly interesting because we had actually started out at least with certain types of media uh, to predict the opposite relationship. We sort of thought that, okay, um, it's a distressing time. We don't know what's going on, but um, consuming news information, getting information about infection risk and and, and protection, et cetera, that that would actually help people to reduce their uh, distress. And it seems that that was not the case. People were more distressed the more time they spend looking for information. And so with that, you looked at social media and you looked at people watching television and then print media as well. Were there any differences between those three? Were some people, uh, did some people worry more looking through social media versus television versus print media? Yes. The, we found the strongest relationships between amount of time spent looking on social media for COVID-related information and emotional distress. That was clearly the strongest relationship. That was actually the one relationship that we had predicted because we know that social media 
as algorithms where information that receives the most clicks, so that's shared the most often, is actually more likely to be presented to individuals. And so what you find on social media is that distressing information, information that is noteworthy, that, that people want to share, that people click on, that people want to read more, um, that, that is actually mostly negative information and that uh, often leads to negative distressing information that creates more panic uh, uh, being seen more often. So it is not entirely surprising uh, that relationship with social media. There's also a second reason. Uh, we, we, we know that people um, tend to hang out even on their social media with people who are similar to them. So if somebody's already anxious and, and is worried about COVID and worried about the future, well, that, they're more likely to be friends on social media with other individuals who also are worried and have a bleak outlook to the future. So um, given that people hang out mostly with people who are similar to themselves, it's not at all surprising the more time you spend on social media, the more time you read other people's posts, the more distressed and the more anxious you feel. So that relationship with social media is actually one that we had predicted, that actually spending more time looking for information on social media would be associated with more psychological distress. What was surprising to us was the relationship with television news uh, and um, distress and then the relationship with print media and um, uh, emotional distress. Even though these relationships were both weaker than the relationship between um, emotional distress and uh, social media consumption, they were still positive and they were still there. That is to say, the more time somebody looked for news in, for instance, print media, the more distressed they tended to be. And um, it's very specific news in general, but then also that effect is even stronger if we ask people if it's specific news related to COVID. The more time they look for information related to COVID, the more distressed they are. And now, so this study was specifically looking at COVID, uh, COVID information. It was done uh, near the beginning of the pandemic, but sort of looking at sort of the world right now, there's certainly a lot of things that people are worrying about. Can this study sort of tell us anything about other topics or would, do you think that this sort of specifically relates to COVID? I think, I don't have the data because I haven't done the research, but I think that our findings will generalize to other domains, be it abortion or climate change or the war in Ukraine. People are incredibly worried that uh, about the future and what that means for them and their future, the kids' future. My guess is that they will selectively expose themselves to news information that confirms these worries. And um, that's sad because um, in a certain way we hope, hey, by informing people by telling them what risks are and how we can mitigate these risks, uh, they would be less emotionally distressed and while well, we find uh, the exact opposite. So in terms of solution, um, I think we should have uh, an open mind. We, we are worried about things and we are worried about what uh, certain phenomena mean for us and for our children's future. But I think uh, instead of just focusing on on, on news items that, that reinforce that worry, maybe we can focus a little bit on solution. We can think about, okay, here's a newspaper article. Oh, that tells me how to mitigate that infection risk. Here's a newspaper article uh, on what inflation means for me. 
is about 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Every other Thursday, our producer Jonah Chester sits down with Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open records and open government. In this rebroadcast from the Transparency Talk archives, Kamenick and Chester examine how elected officials can use private emails to skirt open records laws. As a quick note before we begin, remember this conversation is not intended to be specific legal advice. It is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as always, by our uh, open government transparency wizard himself, Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you doing this week? Good, Jonah. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday, Tom. Uh, we got an interesting topic today, and that is private emails for public business. Uh, as I understand it, there's no real law against government officials and employees doing work on their private phones and accounts. But despite that, it can create some uh, some questions of transparency and some issues. Walk me through the process there. What what red flags get thrown up when people use their private phones to conduct official governmental business? The big problem is that it makes it easy for them to use private email accounts to hide public business from the public. There's just a laundry list of problems that go along with this. Now, anybody familiar with open records law knows that, yes, if you are a government official and you use your private email to do some government work, those emails are subject to the open records law. So they do have to be searched for and turned over. But allowing them to use their private email accounts causes a number of huge problems. So first of all, there's no central administration of these emails. Each official, each employee is just using their own email program, their own email account. There's no oversight centrally with the administration. You know, so everybody's using different programs and everything just works differently. You can't do centralized searches of 20 different email accounts if everybody's using a different email provider. Whereas if you know everybody is using a .wasa.ci.wi.us email domain, that can all be searched in one single search many times. There's no review of how searches were done. So you, you tell a government official that you want them to search their private email accounts for work-related emails, government-related emails with certain keywords. How do you know if they did it right? There's, there's no central IT administrator doing it to explain how it was done. There's, uh, it's, it's all being done on an individual basis. So there's some practical problems, too, that, that there's either no backup of these emails or there might be just limited or inconsistent backup with of these emails because everybody is using different providers with different rules about what gets backed up and what doesn't. That winds up leading to you know the deletion or the loss of emails. Sometimes that might just be accidentally or ignorantly if they don't know that their emails, their old emails are being periodically wiped, but it also just allows for intentional malicious deletion with very little oversight. And there's also an interesting bit of law that at least for elected and high-ranking government officials, they're supposed to turn over all their records to their successors. So your, your city council member 
supposed to turn all of, all of their records over to whoever succeeds them when they resign or lose an election. But that just rarely happens when somebody's using a private email account. Yeah. So essentially, the whole thing focuses around trust. You know, if I if I submit a public records request and it requires the local elected to look through their their private email address to get it, I essentially just have to trust that they did the process correctly and they put in all the effort to get those documents from their private email, their private correspondences, what have you. And I'm not saying you shouldn't trust your local elected official, but I am saying you should be able to trust but verify. Uh, take me from there, Tom. I understand there's there's a relevant example here. Yeah, let's talk about something that happened just recently. So the Wisconsin's Public Service Commission, or PSC, they regulate all the utilities around the state. And one of the controversial topics they frequently handle are new or expanded transmission lines. So those you know, enormous towers that run all the way across multiple states. Well, that, that all goes through the PSC. And there's often a lot of resistance to those. And we've got a story here where one of the three commissioners, his name is Mike Hipsch, he admitted that he had direct communications with a party that was uh, coming before the commission in a proceeding seeking permission to build one of these transmission lines. And it turns out that he wasn't using his government email address, he was using his private phone, and more importantly, he was using an encrypted app called Signal that makes it hard to review these these communications, and uh, sometimes these apps delete such communications immediately with very little trace. Now, Hipsch claims that none of these communications related to this proceeding, you know, I don't know if they were just inquiring after the health of each other's spouses and children or what, but do you believe him on that? It seems really suspicious. And how do you prove it? He's refusing to turn over his phone. So there is there is a solution here that uh, is somewhat obvious on the surface, obvious, but difficult to implement because it would require the lawmakers to get on board with it. And that is prohibiting the use of personal email accounts to do government business. Yeah, some states do this and some individual localities around the country have done it as well and just said, government workers, you may not use your private email accounts to conduct public business. You just can't do it. If somebody tries to send you an email about public business, the only thing you can say back to them is, please use my official government address, which by the way is such and such at such and such.com. In an ideal world, the legislature would make it a crime to use your public email addresses for anything other than that, hey, please, please use my official government email address. It's really, really simple and cheap to do this. Your email accounts are not expensive. You can find them just yourself looking around for $2 per month per account. And once you start buying them in bulk, they get even cheaper. In exchange, you get a lot of benefits uh, if you do that. And so we're starting to see some local governments switch over to this, but it's, it's happening slowly and spottily around the state. It would be better if it was uniformly done. But you get central administration of email records. You get email accounts that can be very easily transferred to the next person that needs to use them. You get consistent and better retention policies. It's much, much easier to search and most importantly, you just get improved public trust now that you don't have to worry about this question of, well, did they really turn over all their emails they have? 
So circling back around to that real-world example you gave there with the PSC commissioner, just anecdotally, how widespread is this practice of elected officials using their private emails to conduct business? I understand there, there might not be any hard and fast numbers there, but do we have any anecdotal evidence of how widespread this is in, let's say, the state legislature? I don't know about the legislature, but I get people calling me and asking questions about this fairly frequently once a week or so. So it seems to be pretty widespread. I mean, it's not just email accounts. Like I mentioned, Hipsch was using a, a, a encrypted messaging app. Uh, there was the issue a couple months ago about uh, UW Chancellor Rebecca Blank using a private portal, which is, is just a fancy way of saying like a private uh, communication system. Uh, to hide communications with other Big Ten conference chancellors from the public. So this keeps coming up. All right. I've been joined on the other end of the line, as always, by uh, Tom Kamenick, founder and president over there at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, thanks for joining me again this week. Good talking to you, Jonah. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. Earlier this year, the city of Madison announced Madeline Bone as the city's very first youth poet laureate. Bone, as well as Madison Poet Laureate Angela Trudell Vasquez, joined Tony Castaneda on this morning's 8 o'clock buzz. Angie, how's it been going? Really good. You Now I'm in public, and uh, I think a week in, July, in June, I saw about 1,000 people. I've been going into schools and libraries, so it's been, it's been great to come out of the pandemic a little bit. Right, and what does a, what does a poet, the city's Poet Laureate, do? I'm a literary ambassador for poetry, um, and that means I take poetry to the people in schools and community centers, residential homes. Um, I judge poetry contests. I write poems when the mayor asks or for different events. Um, I publish. So really, you're just an active civic poet for the community, for all, right. all people. All mm-hmm. right. Now, just recently, the, the Madison Arts Commission and along with you, you guys selected some youth to, to be our, our first youth poet laureate. And uh, you chose Madeline Bone. Can you talk a little bit, uh, uh, Angela, about uh, that process and how this came about? Sure. So we put out the call. We had eight people apply. Uh, we had a reading on Wednesday, July 13th. And we invited all applicants to attend and read from their um, submission. And then we announced the Youth Poet Laureate winner. Um, I've offered all of them to do a cohort and work with them on their poems. Um, The Madison Art Commission and myself were part of the, um, we made the decision together. I wanted this to be a democratic process. This will live on after my term ends in January 2024. And um, yeah, it was a it was a really great process. I feel like we we did our due diligence and um, we did what we needed to do, which is review the poems and and look at the letters and and make a selection based on the poetry that was submitted. And you chose Madeline Bone. Uh, Madeline is fourteen year old, and uh, she, you're only going to be entering ninth grade. Madeline, how does it feel, first of all, to be uh, the city of Madison's first youth? poet laureate yeah i mean it's it's really incredible i was not honestly at all expecting this when i applied yeah it's a really big honor to be the first one okay and uh did you put a lot of work into it have you been a poet for a while or is this uh, something new to you 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know that there was, like, a definitive starting point, I guess, of my writing. I think we all have stories in our heads, and those kind of just stayed in my head. And so, yeah, I don't really remember when I started writing, but it's been a long-time passion of mine. I did um, write all of the poems that I submitted in the application from scratch, though, so, yeah. According to uh, this bio I have here, you've never shared your work with the public before. So what was it like to, uh, well, first of all, submit this to uh, a, a group of people that were going to uh, uh, try and choose a poet laureate? And, and also, what has it been like since? Uh, of course, you probably had to share your poetry in public now, right? Yeah, it's it's been a journey. It was a little bit of a leap of faith um, into the unknown to submit the application initially. Um but Angie and everyone else have been super supportive in, you know, helping me with the process of getting into this role. So. Mm-hmm. And well, now that you're the first City of Madison Youth Poet Laureate, what are you going to do? What what are you, what is your job now? What is your role? Um, I think uh, Angela kind of covered this, but my essentially it's to sort of spark a love of poetry in people. So I'm not sure yet how exactly I'm going to do that, but I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, Angela, uh, this is kind of a, 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 f- a first for Madison, but this is kind of a national movement to uh, declare um, youth poet laureates. Is that right? Yes. Um, actually, I have friends who are poets laureate in other places, former and, and present. And uh, this has been, um, youth poet laureates have been a thing for quite a while it's through Urban Word. Uh, our national or uh, partner is uh, Urban Word. And, um, yeah, it's not uncommon. And the city of Madison really deserves to have a Youth Poet Laureate in addition to a Poet Laureate for the city. Um, and um, I was talking with my friends on the West Coast. How do you do this? So we're following some of their practices. But, uh, you know, so I don't know when it started, but it's been around for a while. I've been aware of it for a while. But then Amanda Gorman kind of hit the national stage, and um, it created more of a buzz around it. Mm-hmm. So, Tony, this was part of my original application to be the Madison Poet Laureate, was declaring that I wanted to bring this to the city. And here we are, you know, a few yeah. years later. What is the process, though, Angie, for, for choosing? I know you said you had eight applicants. Um, what was yeah. the criteria, and why did you choose Madeline? It was the power of her poems on the page. Um, we didn't have people submit an audio recording. We looked at the poems. We read their cover letter. Many of the young poets um, said, said that Amanda Gorman was an inspiration, um, the power of her delivery and her words. But really, it, it comes down to the work. And, uh, you know, Tony, I have a Master of Fine Arts in Poetry. I studied at the Institute of American Indian Arts. Mm-hmm. So I was really looking at the pages, and the person in this position, in addition to giving three readings, which is um, what we said in the process, they will have an opportunity to be submitted or to submit poems to the Youth Poet Laureate Anthology for all of the Youth Poets Laureate. So it, the, this person has to compete on a national level. So I was really looking at quality of work, attention to detail, and did it look like they did some um, editing? You know, editing is, Mm -hmm. I think, part of the real writing. So it was the strength of Madeline's work. That's why um, I recommended her, and other folks felt the same, and and here we are. 
I'm looking forward to uh, uh, hearing more from uh, from you, Madeline, especially. Of course, Angela, I know I'll hear a lot from you, but Madeline, good luck in your first year here, and uh, definitely give us a call and read some more poetry sometime. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Okay, Angela, thank you very much, too. Thank you, Tony. Thanks so much. p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Nikki Hollander, also known as Grandma Kitschy, is an artist and proprietor of Jet Set Vintage on Etsy. She spent a lifetime collecting and selling vintage objects that trigger waves of nostalgia. In this episode of Radio Chipstone and part two of their conversation, Hollander and contributor Jennifer Fields discuss nerdcore and the culture of adults collecting vintage toys. A lot of it, I think, has to do with reminiscing. And um, when I see something, I think, oh, my God, I used to have that. Or my neighbor used to have that. My best friend used to have that. And I was so jealous. Now I can finally have it myself. Oh, my mom had this toy. Or I bet my mom would like this toy because she might have used to have it. Um, But a a lot of the times with toys with me – it's a, it's a graphic um, love, and I love the graphics on the toys. Toys as objects more or less than emotional items. But I love the fact that it, it brings memories to people. For instance, I brought a, an avocado green um, Easy Bake Oven. Girl, shut up. Yes. It's crazy. I brought it to the vintage garage um, on Sunday and it's, I made it at an affordable price, but it was the draw to my booth because everybody had it or had a connection with it or even remembers the car, the, the commercials on TV for it. So it's this really like, stronghold that they got but guess what nobody bought it interesting isn't that so weird it's like i can't figure it out i would have pushed people over because mine was green Mm -hmm. and i can remember (laughs) this is this tells you about my parents they wouldn't let me put this put that mess they sent with it my mother helped me figure out how to make small batches so i can make things that she knew what was in it Oh, she's like, you don't know you. Lord only knows within that mix. They sent you with that thing. I can do better than that. And she could. Oh, that's awesome. I had just the stupid white envelope of crap. (laughs) (laughs) I'll trade that. That's that's good. See, now that like sparked this very, very specific memory. 
So that's kind of interesting, you know, not just a longing for it, but, you know, not a, I have to have it or I myself, I bought it because I thought, oh, I can hang it on the wall and use it as a shelf. You know, I could put something else on top of it because hmm. I'm running out of room. <laughs> That's a good idea. And because it does have that flat area where you could put yeah. something small on there. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly why I bought it. So, you know, for the colors, for, for the style, for, for the graphic qualities of it, you know, because I guess maybe that's where my art side plays into it, I suppose. I don't know. But, you know, that the picture of the girl there on the cover or on the cover of the box baking the cake, you know, that's, that's just, I don't know why I love it. So then I wonder if the, the loving the graphic part of it is more of a connection to the story mm-hmm. than the actual physical object itself. Yeah, it, it very well could be. I wonder, Nikki, if it's, uh, this is the question that I had, and, and I was going to get some talking head to do it, but you got a head and you're talking, so this works. Yeah. I wonder, it feels to me like there is not only the, um, nostalgia can be a physical, an emotional, a chemical reaction to seeing something, mm-hmm. especially a toy. Mm-hmm. They do elicit this really strong reaction. Sometimes it's, I mean, I can imagine w- when people come up to your booth to buy, to look at what you're selling, that you hear a lot of, oh my God. Mm-hmm. That's basically all I hear all the time. And, and that's okay with me. You know, it, it's a bonus if they buy something, but I'm bringing them the memories. You're the The bringer of memories. The memory bringer. Yes. 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 Do you think think that there is a cult? Okay, I'm just going to say it. Do you think that there is a culture around collecting vintage toys because it seems to me it's because and I'm a tattooed you know baby doll silhouette wearing big girl mm-hmm. and it seems to me that there's a culture around collecting toys it's kind of the, just the dress and how people carry themselves goes from like the 50s to the 80s have you noticed that or am I just crazy well I'm crazy but you know what I mean <laughs> no I have noticed that and it is definitely kind of the, and I, I mean this with all respect, kind of the nerdier people um, that are the toy collectors. And like I said, I mean that in the most loving way because I'm a huge nerd. Oh, we're both um, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, there are different levels of nerdity. Like somebody will collect all the Star Wars things from when they grew up in the 70s and 80s. And another nerdy person will collect some Pokemon cards that were from the mid-90s. So, but but those two people, they're probably, they could be friends. And I do see that when I'm out doing my vintage shows and, and, People will see the same item. People that don't know each other, and they'll see it at the same time, and they'll, oh, do you remember the commercial? How funny was that commercial? 
what a weird commercial, you know, and it is something that these people can talk about. And, you know, if you're, if you're at some type of show, some type of convention, you are the type of person that goes to those. That next person is the type of person that goes to those as well. So you already have something in common, even if you don't have anything in common, you know, you can feel comfortable going up to that person and saying, Hey, look at this, but you don't have to. And I think it's cool to have people, people that, you know, have the same likes and dislikes, you know, nerd core, I think is a very big thing. And I think people our age, when we're seeing them in action at these types of things, we're seeing the people that are finally hopefully comfortable in their lives and they can spend $50 on a toy that they had when they were growing up, either for them to look at or for their kids to play with, like how they grew up. So I think that, right, you know, I think it's been this, it's always this wave of what we grew up with is kind of what we want again, or my neighbor had that toy. I never had it. I always wanted it. And I've got 20 extra dollars because I'm a grown up now and I can afford it. And I make the rules myself, right? That's right. I'll buy what I want. I'll have a muffin for breakfast and that's all. (laughs) Oh, a muffin. Wow, that's (laughs) good. I had a cupcake. (laughs) Oh, I would have had a cupcake, but I don't need it. It's like, okay, coffee and frosting together sometimes is weird. Oh, it kind of coats your mouth weird. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Field. And thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporters tonight were Andy Barrow and Emily Kasinger. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, Tony Castaneda with the 8 o'clock buzz, and Jennifer Fields. Nate Wiggyhout produced this newscast, and Shali Pittman is the news director at WORT. Uh, also the engineer tonight. Thanks, Shali. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, don't miss an episode of WORT's local news. You can listen to it as a podcast wherever you subscribe. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening. And good night. And you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison.